My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the Lord be in my heart and on my lips that I may worthily and fitly proclaim the Holy Gospel in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's sermon title is The Kingship of Jesus. While I was preparing for today, um, I came across an item of interest. The Church of England is convening a general synod and the Queen Elizabeth will not be in attendance as she has been in the past. However, she sent a letter to the gathered bishops of the Church of England and I was struck by a portion of it that read like this. And it's hard for me to read this without trying to do a terrible fake British accent, so I will just read it in my normal voice even though I really want to. (laughs) None of us can slow the passage of time. And while we often focus on all that has changed in the intervening years, Much remains unchanged, including the gospel of Christ and his teachings. The list of tasks facing that first general synod may sound familiar to many of you. Christian education, unity, the better distribution of the ordained ministry to the needs of the population. But one stands out supreme, to bring the people of this country to the knowledge and the love of God. Now, in the popular media that's been reporting on this, a lot of them have just focused on that one part about slowing the passage of time. They're like, well, she's been writing a really long time, and she's getting really old, and yeah, her husband, Prince Philip, he just passed away recently. The passage, oh, it's a horrible thing. You know, we're all, you know, we're all mortal. And none of them really comment on the part where she talks about much remains unchanged, including the gospel of Christ and his teachings. And then she, she talks about one thing being supreme. And she says that the supreme thing that the synod has to remember is to bring the people of their country to the knowledge and the love of God. And I thought it fitting to open my sermon this morning on the commemoration of Christ the King with words of faith from a Christian monarch. Because in many ways, those two words are no longer culturally appropriate, Christian and monarch. But I think it's worth noticing here that she highlights the most important task of the clergy in a multicultural society. Through the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ to bring people into the knowledge and the love of God. That means then that it is not the role of a monarch to do that, but the work of the church. It is not the role of a monarch to do that. An earthly monarch, I should say, to do that. It is the work divinely given to the church. It is not the work of a president to do that. It is not the work of a monarch to do that. It is not the work of a prime minister to do that. It is the work of the church. And Christ is the head of the church. But not only is he the head of the church, he is also, as we've heard many times today, the king over all creation, the ruler over all creation, even being called the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this realization of the proper roles of of the monarchy and the clergy, it highlights what can be good when we talk about the kingship of Jesus. 
the commemoration of Christ the King was established in 1925, just to give you a little bit of background in case you didn't know, by Pope Pius XI in his encyclical Quas Primas. It's actually very good. I, I recommend you read it. It's, you can just go, <laughs> you can go to the Vatican and uh, you can read all the old encyclicals. It's there, Quas Primas. And in it, he lays out his reasoning. And, for, and part of the reason was um, with, the, with the close of World War I, so it's in this middle in-between period between World War I and World War II, there arose this sort of, uh, the, the story of modernity. The belief was the more modern we become, the more progress we gain, the better our society will be leading us to this sort of utopian ideal, which World War I and II completely destroyed. But his whole purpose was reminding everybody that there could be no true peace in the world. There can be no true togetherness and oneness in the world outside of the scope of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And for reasons that I don't understand, this commemoration was adopted by uh, many Protestant denominations. And, I, and I, I have a suspicion that the reason why it became popular in Protestant denominations was because of that idealism. And it's, this, this festival, or this feast, has been come to be known as the reign of Christ. And the reason for this change, particularly among mainline Protestantism, is the baggage that comes with using the words like king, kingdom, and authority. And the, the objection is, and I don't intend to spend a lot of time digging deep into this, because that's not the point of the sermon, right? That Jesus, as the Messiah... He was the king of the Jews. But in the Gospels, even though Jesus is king, his kingdom advances not through violence, but through love and through service to others. And that is true. Jesus did not come to institute a temporal monarchy in Palestine. But we cannot neglect the rest of what the scriptures note when they talk about the kingship of the Messiah. And I can't help but wonder if the objections stem from many not actually believing in Jesus as the incarnate word, as God the Son made flesh. And I read an adaption of a, of a quote from a gentleman called John Dominic Crossan that no one should read. And it said this, the second coming of Christ is not an event that we should expect to happen soon violently or literally. The second coming of Christ is what will happen when we Christians finally accept that the first coming was the only coming and start to cooperate with its divine presence. All that matters is the here and now. The only thing we should work for is whatever secularism identifies as, as justice and to, and to work for that. But Jesus isn't ruling and reigning over all things. He's just a nice thought or a type of enlightened person who shows us the way to being a better human. And if we can learn to be better humans, then, you know, we're sort of quasi-participating in the divine because we've learned to be nice. So in the reading from Daniel, we see a few interesting things. And we see one of the aspects of the kingdom of Jesus or the kingship of Jesus is this theme of coming in judgment. And Daniel itself is a fascinating book because it changes from narrative to apocalypse in the space of a few chapters. Has anybody ever read the book of Daniel? It's trippy, 
right? The first half of it, it's the story of Daniel. He goes, he gets thrown into the lion's den. It's the story of, you know, the, the handwriting on the wall. It's the story of the, the three Hebrew youths. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their, their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names. Um, and, you know, they, they don't worship the king and they throw them in the fiery furnace. We all know that story. We heard it in Sunday school. You know, the book of Daniel has all of those great stories. We're not going to eat the king's table. We're just going to eat the vegetables and water and they're healthier than the people who feasted at the king's table. Right? We've heard those stories from the book of Daniel. And then halfway through, the book of Daniel stops and basically turns into an Old Testament version of Revelation. As Ed heard, uh, you heard him read this morning, like a beast shows up and there's horns sticking out all over the place. And those horns have horns and then the horns that have horns have horns right and wings and all sorts of of weird things going on there it's a fantastic book you should read it and a lot of the imagery in Daniel informs a lot of the imagery that we read in the book of Revelation and in the portion from Daniel we see the ancient of days and the son of man ascending to the throne of heaven as the earth and everything on it is judged and judging is and Christ's reign, Christ's bringing about God's judgment is the true definition of biblical justice. That God will come and restore everything to what it was originally purposed to become. Sin and death came in and caused havoc and destruction. And so justice then is the reordering of creation according to the pattern of Jesus Christ. Not by supporting particular political parties and plans, but by the conversion of the nations. Not by supporting Build Better Back or whatever political bill or from whatever party is, 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 is front and center right now. The way, <laughs> the way of, of justice is a reordering of creation in the pattern of Jesus Christ. And the beasts of the earth, the temporal and the spiritual rulers of wickedness and the evil humanity that serve them willfully are dealt with and cast away. And the Son of Man, Jesus, will reign over an everlasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will have no end. And this is one of the main reasons why, brothers and sisters, that we read in the, Old uh, in the New Testament, the Gospels, right, where Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And this makes the religious leaders very angry because when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, their minds instantly go to this passage from the book of Daniel where it talks about the son of man ascending to the throne of God. Jesus is equating himself with the father, which in their eyes and in their minds is blasphemy. Jesus is saying, that son of man character, that's me. And what we see in the, in the commemoration of Christ, the king, of, of how that works out and how that plays itself out in history and in our lives. And then in the reading from the book of, of Revelation, St. John has a, a vision of Jesus. And he's brought to witness events that are already either happening around him and events that will come to pass if they haven't already yet. And remember, there's no cable news. There's no instant connection. There's no... Uh, global communication systems. St. John blesses in the, the, the hearers of the, the letter in the name of Jesus and he begins to describe who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He calls Jesus the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. 
It makes me think of what the psalmist wrote when he said that the hearts of the king, the heart of the king is in the hands of God and he moves it wherever he wishes. And we see pictures of this in scripture. I think particularly a powerful example of God moving the heart of the king in whatever way he wishes is the story of Nehemiah where he's waiting on, I, I believe it's, it's, it's Cyrus, and um, he's pouring the cup for Cyrus, and Cyrus is like, hey dude, why are you looking so sad all the time? And Nehemiah's like, my people, are been, we've been here in Babylon for a really long time, and I'm, I'm really sad about our, our homeland, and the temple's been destroyed, and Jerusalem's in ruins, and we've kind of been here in captivity for a while, and Cyrus is like, you know what? Why don't you go, take all the people that want to go with you, and rebuild it. Here's a bunch of money and here's a bunch of materials. Now go. And I was like, you sure? And so I was like, yeah, I'm sure. And so, okay then. Can I have a bunch of letters so I can give the people there telling me that you've approved this so I don't have any trouble? And Cyrus is like, you can have whatever you want. And Nehemiah goes and he rebuilds the temple and he rebuilds Jerusalem. The heart of the king is moved by God. Even if Cyrus himself doesn't even know that God is the one who's doing that in him. So there's a sense that any king or I guess any politician that rules any part of the earth is actually subservient to Jesus even if they don't know it. They will have to answer to Jesus for how they governed even if they don't know it. Whatever they do will wind up serving the purposes of God even if they don't know it. And John goes, John goes on to say that, that Jesus has freed us. Part of the aspect of the kingship of Jesus is our freedom. And then that should lead us to ask freedom from what? Freedom from our sins and freedom from death. His forgiving our sins, his freeing us from our sins took us out of the kingdom of this world and has made us, John says here, a kingdom of priests a kingdom of priests the priestly work of prayer of worship of service this is the vocation of all of the members of the kingdom of God as we await his coming in the clouds and John notes that every eye will see him and he says even those who pierced him did you get that the very people who nailed him to the cross, the crooked religious leaders who colluded with Roman authorities, and those authorities themselves, Pilate, the Pharisees, the very soldiers that held Jesus down, the very soldier that held the nail, the very soldier that held the mallet and, and hammered those nails in, the very people who covered Jesus' head, put a crown of thorns on him and covered his head and then smacked him with a rod and said, prophesy, who was it that hit you? Every single person who pierced him will see him. And all of us will see him. And all of, the, all of those who do not believe, who pierced him with blasphemy, with unbelief, will see him. And John says they will wail because they know what awaits them. But awaits, what awaits us, brothers and sisters, is freedom. As our freedom from sin and our being ransomed from death leads us into eternal life with Christ. The last aspect about the kingship of Jesus is Jesus is the king of truth. The king of truth. So we've talked about judgment, freedom, 
and truth. So in the section that we heard from the gospel according to St. John, Jesus is the truth. So those who are of the truth listen to his voice. So listen to his voice doesn't mean just to, to, to hear it, right? Obviously you have to hear it. It's not just the act of hearing the reception of you know, the audio through your, your ear canals. But it means to follow and to obey. <laughs> when Isaac does something wrong and I say, you need to listen. I'm not saying he just needs to hear the words that are coming out of my mouth. He also knows that listen means to stop doing whatever it is mommy or daddy told him not to do. With varying degrees of success, I might add. <laughs> because he's four. <laughs> to listen to Jesus' voice, you have to know his voice. And to know his voice, you have to know him. And Pilate and the religious leaders of Israel did not know him. And they did not believe in him, so his voice was rejected. And in doing so, they denied the very truths their faith pointed to. Right? So for the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the whole of the Torah, the whole of the prophets, the whole of their ancient scriptures pointed towards Jesus, the presence of their rightful king, the Messiah, right there in their midst. Everything is pointing to him and they do not receive him. The embodiments of the very truth of the faith. And Pilate doesn't get out of this either. Because in those days, Caesar Augustus, they would call him things like the son of God. Did you know that? That the Caesars took on titles for themselves like the son of God? Because Caesar was not just a, a, a ruler, like he wasn't just a political figure who had power. He was also a priest. The priest. And Augustus and other Caesars took on for themselves titles like the son of God. They also took on titles for themselves like the savior of the world. Who is standing before Pilate? Jesus. Who is Jesus? The son of God. The savior of the world. Not Caesar Augustus. Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one to whom even Augustus himself needs to bow the knee. But Pilate, like the religious Jewish leaders, do not see the truth standing right in front of them. In conclusion, what I'd like to do is read a short selection from Quas Primas, from Pope Pius XI, because I think what he has to say ties this all together perfectly. So please bear with me. It's not a very long quote. He says this, If to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven and on earth, if all men and women purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all, it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, 
which should ascend with perfect submission and firm belief to reveal truths and to the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts, which should spurn natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. He must reign in our bodies, which should serve as instruments for the interior sanctification of our souls, or to use the words of the Apostle Paul as instruments of justice unto God. And I think those four things are very powerful, right? He says that Jesus must reign in our minds. And this is, just, this is not just a mental ascent to, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is all also a mental submission to him. Submission to the truth that has been revealed to us, the truth that has been given as to who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what he continues to do. Reigning in our wills means that we should then turn our will towards Christ. So we should obey the laws of God, right? The ten, God gives us only 10, right? Like they, they're still applicable to us today, right? Turning our wills in submission to Jesus. And that sometimes means doing things we don't want to do. He must reign in our hearts. We should place serving him above all things and cleave to him. Why? Because in his kingship, he has freed us. He has freed us and redeemed us from sin and death and given us new life, which will be eternal in his kingdom. He must reign in our bodies which means that what we use our bodies for matters. How we use our bodies matters. St. Paul says in Romans, you know, we are to offer ourselves up as a sacrifice to God. And I think, in conclusion, this, this Christ the King Sunday, we need to recover this language of Christ as king. Because what's happened is, is this idea that, well, because Jesus says, right, I, my kingdom is not of this world. And he says to, to, to Pilate, right, if my kingdom was of this world, then my followers would have taken arms up and, and tried to rescue me. And even when he's on the cross, like he says, I could call legions of angels to come and to free me. And he doesn't do it. Because his kingdom is different. His kingdom is not one of violence or coercion. It's one of, of love and service. But for some, those ideas are mutually exclusive. That you could have a king who rules through love. Because for us as human beings, Kings and monarchs can only rule through fear, through intimidation, and through selfishness. Which is why Jesus is the only king worth following. Because he is the only king. The only one who rules through love and calls us to follow him in the same. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom all power in heaven and on earth resides be all glory together with his father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life creating spirit amen thanks for listening to today's podcast 
If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower, as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me, or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zion's Stone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.